0: Well, as our cactus campus and then our venue across campus and then our chapel next door join us for our time in the Word, I get the wonderful privilege to introduce to uh, to you today our guest speaker. Uh, I'm telling you a story as I do so. About nine months ago, I was sitting in my office and I was planning, uh, as we were finishing touches on this schedule for the whole year, and I think it was Tom, somebody walked in my office and said, kind of in a panicky way, we have a problem. As we look at the whole year-long calendar, when it comes to October, we've planned the Missions Conference on the same weekend that is the Men's Ministry Retreat Weekend. And we just don't do things like that because we want us all to be together for this event. And so I said, well, as as sad as that is, I I said, just let Darian know that the missions conference, because we already booked tickets to bring 40 missionaries home, is going to have to take precedent. And the men's ministry are going to have to have their annual retreat another weekend. And, And I'm sure Darian will understand. And they said, okay. As that person was leaving my office, I said, Oh, by the way, who did they get to speak at the men's retreat this weekend? Schrader and I have done it the last five years, but the men have gotten Schrader fatigue, so I know they were trying to get somebody else <laughs> to come in and, and to speak. And this person looked at me and said, They got Larry Osborne. Now, I was stunned. I said, You guys got Larry Osborne to come in and do the men's retreat? Uh, Larry is the senior pastor of North Coast Church uh, over in San Diego. He's grown the church from 125 families to a current attendance every weekend of 11,000 people in 36, yeah, 36, mm-hmm. this is really going to blow you away, 36 different worship venues every weekend. Uh, Larry has basically helped uh, the church nationwide learn how to do multi-site and multi-venues and really expand the church given very limited physical resources. Larry is a well-known teacher of other pastors. He's a a great author of books. My favorite book title he's written is called A uh, Contrarian's Guide to Christianity. And uh, and, and Larry is just a wonderful, wonderful Bible teacher. I said, how did you guys get Larry for the men's retreat? The guy said, I don't know. And I said, well, when you tell Darian that he's got to move the men's retreat, tell him I'm keeping his speaker for the missions conference. (laughs) That's how we ended up with Larry. You guys are going to love Dr. Larry Osborne. He's got his undergraduate degree from Biola, a master's degree, as well as an earned doctorate from Talbot, Talbot Theological Seminary. And after having dinner with him last night, I can safely say he is now my friend and a friend of our church. So let's give a great Scottsdale Bible welcome to Dr. Larry Osborne. Thanks.
1: Well, it is, uh, it's a real privilege to be with you. Back when uh, North Coast Church uh, was starting, just a, a handful of uh, families meeting in the high school cafeteria, uh, complete with uh, food fight remnants on the wall and all kinds of other exciting uh, 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 extras, uh, Scottsdale Bible was a church that God had already raised up and was already doing significant enough stuff that it was, it was known by those of us that were out there starting and trying to figure out what God might do with us. So... Uh, What a privilege, Uh, a church that uh, I knew of, a church that uh, I looked up to and and even had a dream someday. Could we ever have the kind of impact uh, of uh, Scottsdale and, you know, a whole series of other churches that back then uh, were the churches that God had always raised up. So that's an honor. Uh, By the way, uh, the the doctor thing, let's set that straight right now. Uh, While I was, uh, uh, right after I'd gotten it, I was helping a staff member get uh, housing. And uh, any of you in uh, sales or retail, you know, you look at a business card or whatever, and, and you use whatever role or title, you know, and so you're kind of kissing them up or whatever. So the guy was calling me Dr. Osborne all day long. And my young son, my oldest son, who was very young then, heard that. And so the next morning, he, c- he comes scampering down the stairs, and he says, Daddy, Daddy. I go, what, hon? He says, how come you're the kind of doctor who can't fix anything? So, uh, out of the mouth of babes, all right? Uh, so let's, let's just get that one straight. But I'll tell you what I can do and love to do, and that is teach the Word of God. And so today what we're going to be looking at is we're going to be looking at a story that many of us think of in terms of a children's Sunday school. It's a, a sadly for a lot of people, it's an adventure story in the Bible. It's the story of Daniel. And we're going to be looking together at Daniel chapter 1. I mean, when you got the book of Daniel, what you have is Daniel and the... Lion's Den, right? And you got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in our family. But uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they have the fiery furnace. So you got these great miracles in it. So it's somehow become a kid's adventure story for Sunday school classes. Uh, And then at the backside, there's a, a prophecy section. And so it has become, for some people, a great passage to speculate on things that we don't quite know all the details of, but we can stand up and act like we do. And in the midst of that, what's happened is we've missed the core of what it's all about. For the Bible tells us that all Scripture is written and given to us for rebuke and correction when we need that, and for instruction and training in righteousness. The fact of the matter is that this particular book was given to us to train and instruct us how we are to live whenever we find ourselves in a godless culture or society. So on this missions weekend, it's just a fabulous passage to be using and looking at, because uh, the missionaries that you support, they're in their own Babylon, are they not? Uh, And they're trying to bring a little bit of light into a dark place. And yet, for each of us, that's where we live as well. Uh, I've got a newsflash for you if you haven't missed it. A lot of the culture wars, they're over. We lost. We lost. And we are now in our own Babylon trying to figure out what in the world are we to do to shine the light of our Lord Jesus Christ into some incredibly dark places. Uh, am I the only one that every now and then goes to sleep and wakes up the next morning to the news about something and thinks, man, did I sleep for years? Uh, it, it seems as if sometimes our culture and our world is going to hell in a handbasket at warp speed. Amen? Amen. So, guess what God put in our Bible? The story of a man named Daniel. And in Daniel, what we find is exactly how you and I are to live in the midst of our Babylons. Be they Babylons overseas or be they Babylons that we're stuck right in the middle of. So, if you're not already there, I want to encourage you to take your Bible or your digital device and find Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. And for those of you that are brand new at this Bible and Jesus and figuring it all out, i got a hot tip for you. God put a table of contents in the front of your Bible. And it makes it so easy to find these things. So I'll go there and find Daniel chapter 1. And what we're going to do is uh, we're going to walk through. I'm just going to do a running commentary through this first chapter, highlighting and pointing out some things. And then we're going to step back and figure out what in the world was it that made Daniel so different? How did he not only survive in Babylon, how did he thrive? Leading national revivals in the darkest of places. And we're going to discover that the pattern and secrets that he lived by were incredibly different than the knee-jerk responses that have happened so often for many of us that have grown up or, or, or kind of see our world as being a lot more Christian than maybe it really is at this point. You'll see some just radically shocking responses. And I'm going to lay before you, they are the reason that God put this book in our Bible. And they are the reason that he didn't survive, but he thrived. So let's dig into the passage, okay? Uh, Daniel chapter 1, beginning of verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed these, temple, these uh, vessels from the temple into the treasury of his demon God. Now, if you treat your Bible as a life textbook, and I sure hope you do, uh, uh, underline or, or, or digitally mark up a key phrase that is just kind of missed completely when Daniel becomes an adventure story for children. It is this phrase, the beginning of verse two, and the Lord gave. It's impossible to understand the story of Daniel if we don't understand this foundational principle upon which his entire story is built. And that is his strong understanding of the sovereignty of God. Nebuchadnezzar, the evil, damnable king of Babylon, comes and besieges uh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem loses, and he says it was the... Lord who gave it over. Don't miss that. It was also the Lord who was behind the fact that things from the treasury of the temple of God were taken and transported over to the treasury of, of Nebuchadnezzar's demon god as a way of mocking the inferiority of the Lord of lords and king of kings. And Daniel says from the beginning, don't miss this. The who? The Lord is the one who is behind it all. I want you to catch how big this uh, God letting him take things from the simple treasury was. Um, back when the children of Israel moved into the promised land, there's, there's a principle in the Bible called the first fruit principle. And uh, the first belongs to God, and then the rest belongs to us. So the very first city that they uh, went against uh, was uh, uh, called uh, uh, Jericho. And uh, Uh, all of the spoils from Jericho were to go into the temple of God. And then after that, all the spoils from every other city could go to the soldiers and the people. Well, there's this one moron named Achan. And uh, what he decided is a couple of really beautiful things wouldn't be missed after uh, the battle of Jericho. So he took them and he put them and hid them under his tent. Uh, And and so the very next battle was a little town called Ai, kind of a podunk if there ever was podunk. And, and so they sent just a small army uh, against them. And over 30 of the Jewish soldiers were killed. Families without fathers, uh, uh, without uh, sons, and without husbands. And to make a long story short, the reason simply was that was one guy had taken stuff that belonged to God and had kept it for himself. And there was sin in the camp. And until it was dealt with, they were going to lose every single battle. That's how important this stuff was. Uh, There's another story where the Ark of the Covenant is being moved, and as it begins to tip over, some people step forward to keep it from falling, and they're struck dead. That's how important it was. And yet it was the Lord who said, go ahead and have it. So keep that clocked into your your mind as such an important part of this particular story as we go on. At the speed of an arthritic snail. <clears throat> Verse 3. The king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch. Just also mark that in your head. There's lots of eunuchs serving there. He's the chief one. That will become important later on. To bring uh, some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, And here's the kind of people, verse 4 says, they were. Youth without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, uh, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, if Daniel says so himself. And here's what they were to do. To teach them the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Another key phrase worth underlining. What is the language and the literature of the Chaldeans? It's the occult and astrology. For three years, they were going to study the occult and astrology, and then they were going to be tested to see if they grasped it well enough to move into the service of Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 5 says, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand or be tested before the king. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Daniel called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and uh, Azariah he called Abednego. By the way, a little hot tip next time you're in a Bible study, you notice all these weird Bible names you have no idea how to pronounce them? Say them fast and confidently and everybody thinks you're right. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> Just... Fast and confident, they'll go, oh, that's how you say that, whatever, so that's, that's for free. But what I want you to know is Daniel got a name change, and we read Belshazzar, and like, well, whatever, we don't tend to know what that means. Daniel means God is my prince. It's like naming someone today Christian who's a follower of Jesus. Belshazzar means Baal's prince. Excuse me, Daniel means God is my judge, I misspoke, God is my judge. And Belshazzar means uh, Baal's prince. It's like taking someone named Christian and giving them the name Satan. That's a big deal. But it flies over most of our heads because we don't know these names. But keep that in your head as we continue. Verse uh, uh, 9, 8 says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank, Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And once again, we see God's hand. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, well, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. Why should he see that you were in worse condition than the other youths of your own age? Uh, That would endanger my head. You don't know how bloodthirsty this guy is. He'll kill me if you're not doing well. Well, then Daniel said to the steward, very politely, notice this, very creatively, he looks for another solution. Uh, He said to the steward and the chief of eunuchs that had signed over Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah, well, how about you test your servants for 10 days? Just give us a test. Now, what is this about? This is about the kosher diet that God had clearly given to them, and they were told not to eat certain things that were part of the king's diet. So he says, can I, be, can I be given something else? Oh no, that won't happen. He creatively, rather than having a conniption fit, getting all upset, you don't know who I am, you don't know who my God is, he just politely and kindly says, okay. He looks for another alternative. And all he asks is for a 10-day test. And he says, at the end of these 10 days, you test us and then we are willing to accept whatever the consequences are. Just please give us this test. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to whatever you see. Verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter and he tested them for ten days. And at the end of the ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. That's one of my favorite verses. We live in a day where all you skinny runs think you look good. Back then, that meant you were too poor to have food. And so they were pretty pumped up that like, hey, he's buffing up a little bit, okay? Um, anyway, that too is for free. <clears throat> so the steward took away their food and their wine that they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. We pick it up now in verse 17. As for these four youths, once again... God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. What did God give them giftedness in? The language and literature of the Chaldeans, which is astrology and the occult. God was the one who allowed these four to graduate at the top of their class. Rather strange and completely biblical. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Verse 18, at the, uh, uh, at the end of the, the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, uh, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar and the king spoke with them and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. In other words, they entered in to his royal court serving. And by the way, you read the rest of the book, they served so well they kept getting promoted. Keep that in your head. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. All the previous classes, their valedictorians, these guys smoked, completely smoked them. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now I want to step back and, and highlight a couple of things. The first thing is I want us to grasp how evil Babylon was. We know it's evil. We kind of go, okay, and Nebuchadnezzar was a bad guy king, whatever. No, here's how evil uh, Babylon was. To this very day and until Jesus Christ returns in heaven, the personification of all evil is Babylon. Babylon. Did you know in the book of Revelation, right before Jesus Christ is the return, and the angels realize now the day has come, they're going to cry out, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Not Las Vegas. <laughs> Not Nazi Germany. Not Sodom and Gomorrah. Babylon. And I want to remind you, Babylon won't exist at that point because a prophecy was given against it. It would never be rebuilt when it was destroyed. It was destroyed. It's just as the angels look back through all of history, there's nothing else that that creates a word picture for evil, as powerfully evil as Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, how bad was he? He raided God's temple. He mocked God publicly And he put God's stuff in the temple of his demon God. How bad was the culture? Well, I'm from San Diego, which means I live in the land of fruits and nuts. (laughs) Amen? And uh, I can't believe what our uh, governors, our mayors, our legislature, our school boards, our courts, whatever. I mean, I'm just... I've lived there all my life, and I am constantly, constantly amazed. Uh, I, I'm wondering, what are you smoking? Well, I kind of know, but whatever. <laughs> like, what is this? But I want to tell you, in the worst day of any legal or government decision, we have never said that astrology and of the occult is the core curriculum that anybody who wants to be in public service must master. Some people don't like the curriculums in our schools. Three years, the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. That's how bad it was. Now, how deep were the weeds that uh, uh, poor old Daniel was in? They were deep. Poor guy was kidnapped, uh, had his name changed to honor Satan, and he was castrated. Now, some of you are thinking, I've taught third grade Sunday school for a long time, and I didn't know, where's that? Well, there's some things we don't tell our third graders. And besides that, it's not explicit in the passage, but it's implied. Let me tell you a couple of things about uh, history back then. Uh, First of all, to, to to the Jews, it was very important to have family, especially sons, a spiritual legacy, and something else. In those days, there was no social security. The only social security you had in your old age was the sons that God granted you to take care of you and your property and whatever it would be. So it was to be cursed of God, not to have a son. And yet, in the book of Daniel, nothing is ever, ever mentioned about families. We know something else about the kings of antiquity. You got this old king, and he captures a city-state, and he looks around and he takes the most beautiful women and he puts them into his harem, and he takes the best-looking, smartest, coolest guys, as Daniel told us, and he brings them into his court. Now, do you see a little bit of problem there? Lots of beautiful women and lots of cool dudes. So how would they solve it? they turn them into eunuchs. And that's why I pointed out over and over, the chief of the eunuchs, the foreigners that were brought into service were almost always, for that reason, turned into a eunuch, castrated, so there would be no problems later on. I don't know about you. But being kidnapped, having my name changed on honor Satan, and castrated, that's a bad week. <laughs> and yet somehow he thrived. How in the world did he do it? Well, I want to unpack the three secrets to his success that I believe are the same secrets to our success, whether we're overseas or we're here today. If we want to impact and influence our own Babylons for God. Be it a Babylon in your neighborhood, be it the Babylon of your workplace, of our community, of our states, of our culture, of our world. These three things are still the keys. The instruction and training in righteousness that God put this story in here for us. And here they are. The first one is Daniel was a man of hope slash optimism. Daniel was a man of incredible hope. And optimism and it's a foundation upon which all of his impact was built and the reason I wanted to call it hope slash optimism is is the Bible uses the word hope differently than we use it uh, today when we say I hope we go I hope you have a good time uh, It pretty mean, pretty much means I wish but the biblical concept of hope is confidence It's what I place my hope and my confidence in. The return of Jesus is our blessed hope, according to the Bible. It doesn't mean like, oh gosh, I really hope he does come back. It means I'm confident that he's coming back and it impacts everything. That's why I pointed out to you at the very beginning of this book, Daniel says the Lord gave. Everything through the book of Daniel is built on his understanding that God's in control of who's in control. He might not understand what's going on. He might not like everything that's going on. But he knew that God had made promises to the nation of Israel. And later on in the book, he's seeking of the Lord, like, when are these things going to happen? He never lost his confidence and hope. He understood that sometimes even the short-term success of the wicked is God's will. Because when God brings his judgment, he always starts with a household of God. You know, every, I don't know if you're like me, but every now and then I go, Lord, when are you going to come and set things straight? And he's like, you want me to, Larry? Okay, I'll show up at your house tonight. Well, that's not quite what I meant, Lord, right? But the judgment of God begins with the household of God, always has and always will. And Daniel understood that. And that meant that he grasped this principle. You might want to jot it down. Panic and despair are never from God. There's a time to be concerned, there's a time to worry, there's a biblical way to respond. But the moment I go into panic and despair, that means I have lost my hope and optimism. And it means I'm no longer believing the promises of God. And with all that Daniel found himself in and all that happened to Daniel, the one thing he never lost all the way through, even when it looked like he was going to be eaten by a bunch of lions, even when his friends thought they were going to be burned to a crisp for not bowing down and worshiping Nebuchadnezzar, they always understood that God was in control of who was in control. And they knew the end of the story. You know, at North Coast, uh, Chris Brown's the other teaching pastor with me, and the two of us are always having people ask us, hey, will you teach through the book of Revelation? Now, they don't really want to study the book of Revelation. They just want us to tell them who the Antichrist is, uh, uh, you know, kind of as if we know. Uh, and so I'm normally telling them, I'm sorry, I'm not on the programming committee. I'm on the welcoming committee. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, but I do also add this. I bet a bunch of you have too. I go. I've read the book a few times, and I don't know if you know it, but in the end, we win. Did you know that? We win. Really. It's okay. I know your English teacher doesn't like to do that, but just kind of sneak sometime to the last few pages and read them. We win. Well, if we win, why am I in despair? no matter what happens. See, that's why Daniel understood that. (coughs) He understood uh, what later on Jesus promised. He said, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, growing up, here's what I thought that passage meant. Whatever Satan throws against us, we'll be able to kind of just hunker down. We'll live through it, kind of like in a mobile home in Arkansas after a tornado. uh, I peek up, and everything's around me wrecked, but at least I lived. And the problem is, we're all like fish and water. You ask a fish, how's the water? The fish goes, what water? Because that's all it knows. Uh, and we read the Bible often in light of our culture and our world, and, and, and we don't understand what the gates were. Uh, the gates were not the offensive weapon of the enemy he throws against us. <laughs> no general said, okay, everybody pick up your gate. Let's go to battle. The gates were a defensive weapon. Jesus is saying the gates of hell can't hold us back. We can charge hell with squirt guns. And it worries. We've lost that hope in so many cases. we become men and women of discouragement and despair in the short-term successes. Now, there's an illustration I always use here that's really painful for me to use today. <clears throat> because um, from being a little Tycon, I-, I grew up a USC football fan. Congratulations on being lucky. (laughs) Somebody caught me today who who heard me get the illustration later, and they said, oh, man, that's a tough one. And they said, oh, you were the better team for three quarters. And I said, yeah, but the game's four quarters. Okay, right? Uh, But anyway, I grew up uh, all my life as a USC football fan, so give me some grace (laughs) and and sympathy today. Um, But if you're a USC football fan, you understand one thing. The biggest game of the year is not the UCLA game. It's the Notre Dame game. Two great schools with a history of national championships, Heisman trophies, the longest cross-sectional rivalry in the country, the greatest one most sports fans say. Uh, There's no trash talk between the two teams, just incredible respect. That is the one game you absolutely want to win if you're a USC fan. Now, a number of years ago, SC looked like it was on its way to a second straight national championship, and I was home alone watching them play a Notre Dame team that that particular year was very pedestrian, not very good. But if you know much about sports, if you don't take advantage of the uh, opponent when you're the stronger one uh, early on, uh, then uh, you keep letting them off the hook, bad things are going to happen. And uh, that's exactly how that game went. SC was far superior team, but they kept messing up here, messing up there. Notre Dame stayed close. And with just about a few seconds over, two minutes left, they go down and score a go-ahead touchdown. I'm just bummed. Well. I still decide to sit there because SC has a long history of great comebacks at the end, and we'll see if a miracle can happen. And and sure enough, there's a kickoff, and they they get the ball to the 20-yard line. And uh, it's it's now third down, and the quarterback fades back looking for somebody to get open. And a lineman from Notre Dame breaks through and throws him for a 15-yard loss. It's now fourth and forever, seconds left on the clock. They're playing Notre Dame at Notre Dame where the stands are about... 14 inches from the field. The place is absolutely going nuts. All of the Notre Dame linemen are chest bumping one another and they're showing the fans and they're high-fiving. The stupid little leprechaun is going across the field. And in the midst of that, I lose my sanctification. I utter a few of those Christian euphemisms. I wonder why God is not on his throne right now. Come on, where are you? (laughs) And I just about grabbed the remote to turn it off, and I go, well, whatever, I'll just watch the train wreck. And somehow, on fourth and kazillion, the quarterback fades back, throws a pass down the sidelines, it gets just like an eighth of an inch over the defensive back's fingers, nestles into the receiver's hands, who runs all the way to the two-yard line, and on the final play of a famous game in USC lore called the Bush Push, SC wins. God is back on his throne. I am confessing my immature euphemisms. Now, here's the weird thing. I have a DVD of that game, I've watched it a few times, I'm not that fan, I don't watch it daily, but a few times. (laughs) And when I come to that third down play where everything goes wrong, I mean, nothing could go worse, the announcers are talking about how the game's over, you know, the fans are doing the high five, the chest bumps, the leprechaun, guess what I do? I pick up the remote and I put it on reverse and I play it again (laughs) in slow motion. And I watch the smile on their faces. I watch their just great joy. I watch the leprechaun. <laughs> and I smile big. Why? Because I know what's coming next. The same exact plays with one difference. I know how the game ends. Men and women, if we want to make an impact in Babylon over there and Babylon here, we must be men and women who know how the game ends. When our co-workers, when our neighbors, when our friends see us discouraged or despair because of a short-term setback, even a lifetime setback, why in the world would they join up with a losing team? Daniel never, ever forgot God's in control of who's in control. And in the darkest of places and the darkest of circumstances, he remembered it's only the third quarter. The game's not over yet. Now there's a second secret upon this foundation that I spent most of my time on because without it everything else doesn't really matter. And the second secret that you'll find all the way through Daniel if you were to read it over and over this week is that he underst- he also had humility. He not only had hope and optimism, but he had humility in the way that he responded to everybody. He wasn't arrogant. He didn't look down on anybody. Even evil Nebuchadnezzar, who had conquered his people, kidnapped him, forced him to study the occult, and mock God in all of his responses with Nebuchadnezzar, he was incredibly respectful. Read through Daniel with just the lens of how does Daniel... By the way, you find the same thing with Joseph in the book of Genesis. How did they respond to the godless people around them? Never with an attitude always with incredible humility and respect. In fact, at one point uh, later on in the book, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to get his. God's finally judging him for all that he's done and his arrogance. And Daniel comes to him, and here's what I would have done to Nebuchadnezzar. I would have come up and said, dude, it's in the Hebrew. <laughs> I've been praying for this a long time and you're getting yours tomorrow. And Daniel says, O king, I wish it was anybody but you. What a heart and what an attitude to have towards those who were even carrying out the will of the enemy. Uh, jot this passage down. We don't have time to look at it, but it's so key. It's 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2 verses 24 to 26, and it tells us exactly how we are to deal with those who are held captive to actually do the enemy's will. In other words, they're, they're at the head of his parade. He says, if I'm God's bondservant, I must not quarrel with them, I must be kind to them, I must patiently endure evil, some translations say not resentful, I must correct them with gentleness, all because I want to see them come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil. You see, sometimes what we forget is we use phrases like Christian warfare, spiritual warfare nowadays, which is always between us and Satan in our heart, but we use it in culture wars and other phrases. And the problem is when we use the warfare phrase, not just with the enemy, but with our culture, we begin to think we're at war. And when you're at war, you're trying to wipe out. But we are called to win over. There's a big difference. Just like our Lord died for us while we were his enemies, We are called to be men and women whose number one goal is the Great Commission, going into all the world, seeing them come to Jesus, baptizing them, and bringing them to full maturity where they obey everything he taught. It's winning over. It's not wiping out. And that was Daniel's goal with Nebuchadnezzar. That was uh, uh, his goal with each of the various groups that he found himself serving under. And the last thing about him is his wisdom daniel was a man of incredible wisdom in the way that he picked his battles when it came to breaking god's absolute crystal clear black and white rule of kosher laws he said no way whatever test us i'll accept whatever the consequences were are when he was told he had to go a season where he could not pray to god and he'd spent his entire life opening the window and praying towards jerusalem for god to fulfill the promise to return them he said sorry i'm going to do that cast me the lions or whatever it is you want to do But when it came to studying the cult for three years, he said, okay, give me a good pencil. Uh, When it came time to uh, having his name changed to honor Satan, he said, fine, just don't call me late to dinner. Uh, it, It is amazing to me the wisdom that he had to pick his battles. And how sometimes we lose our ability to impact our world and our culture because we're picking battles that the Lord is saying, just let it go. Men and women, I want to promise you this. If we live here and pray for and support our missionaries over there to be men and women of hope and genuine humility and the wisdom to pick our battles, we can see our world changed. But when we fight with the weapons of the world and the battles of the world, our Lord simply says, I'm not with you in this one. Imagine Joshua decided, instead of marching around Jericho seven times, he just said, well, I got a better plan. I'll attack it. We're superior, we're stronger. God would have said, I'm not there. Because my battle plan is march around it and blow your stupid trumpets. God's plan today is hope, humility, and wisdom. Father, help us to be men and women, help this great church to be a church, and help our missionaries to be missionaries who play by your rules, who exude hope, humility, and wisdom to the glory of our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: We want to encourage you, as you leave here in just a minute, to go to the uh, tents on your way out. I was just out there myself, and the missionaries are really looking forward to interacting with you and allowing you to see a little bit of how God is using them on the field. And there's food trucks and everything, so please take advantage of that. Uh, We have asked Labib Madanab who is one of our missionaries in Jordan. You might recognize him from last week's video about Janine Israel, to come up and do a benediction for us as we close our service today. So thank you, Labib.
2: The benediction this morning, I will pray it in three languages. Hebrew, my heart's language, Arabic. My mother's tongue. And English, my wife's tongue. Let us pray. Yevarkecha Adonai, Veshmerecha Ya'ir Adonai panav elicha, vayapneicha. Adunai Lacha Shalom Hamuka Aleika The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you.